I want to start with a quote, though, that will sort of shape our time together. This is a uh, a guy named A.W. Tozer wrote this in his book called The Pursuit of God. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's an interesting quote. And you could maybe argue it from a couple different angles that it's that's right, or, or maybe some of the semantics are like, well, is that the biggest thing? Uh, he actually, he and C.S. Lewis wrote sort of back and forth and said, well, is what we think of God the most important thing, or is what God thinks of us the most important thing? But the the essence of the quote, I think, what comes to our minds when we think about God is uh, correct. It's important. Because the way we think about God will 100% affect the way we go through life. And I think, I think we can uh, see that. If we uh, consider that the concept of there even being a God is just sort of some, some silly fairy tale that's been proven uh, false by science or whatever, chances are we'll just go through life looking at the physical realities around us, uh, the physical realities of the universe, and not necessarily consider that there, there may be a, a metaphysical reality or a supernatural reality. And that's a, that's a, way, it's a way that will shape how you look at the world for sure. If we think that God is in everything around us, you know, God's, God's in the trees and in the water and in the rocks and in the, the waterfalls, and it's just everything is God, then we'll probably go through life uh, worshiping effectively creation and saying, you know, this, all this is God, so we need to be careful with it. If we think that this concept of God is just simply some state of enlightenment that we can obtain, if we uh, dig down and drill down deep enough inside of us, we'll find this, this meaning, this purpose, this, this state of enlightenment, then we'll probably actually just elevate ourselves to the state of God and our, our own abilities and, and strive to just find this enlightenment. If we think God is just some sort of distant deity who, who created things and then kind of started the world spinning on a top and is backed off and just sitting watching it spin while we struggle and toil and work to try and get it figured out, that will affect how we look at God, won't it? It'll probably uh, even dwell up some, some anger or some resentment in it. God, how can you do this to us, God? Start us here and then just leave us to sort it out on our own. If we hear the language of God being Father and we project our relationships with our earthly dads onto God, and that, that shapes that relationship in a ton of ways. Hopefully some good ways. But I know, I, I suspect we all know that our fathers weren't perfect. Uh, sorry, John, you're not perfect. You'll find that out soon. If you haven't already. And so some of the ways that we have wrestled with our earthly, earthly dads will reflect on how we uh, see God if we, if we tie those things together too tightly. But if we have a right view of God, of who he is and what he's done, then we'll also rightly view the world around us. And so that's kind of where we're headed today. We're in a series looking at the Psalms, and what we want to do is we want to learn from them, and maybe most specifically we want to learn how to pray from them. So we're not going to walk verse by verse through the 150 of the Psalms, as we often do when we preach through a book, but rather we're going to consider six different types or six different categories of Psalms to see what we can learn from these different types as we read them and study them and and kind of live in them. 
Last week we started out and we looked at the, the very first psalm, Psalm 1, as a, as a wisdom psalm or a beatitude psalm. And we saw that this, there's, there's a type of psalm, of the 150 of them, that's helpful and helps us see what it means to be happy or blessed or fulfilled. It's, it's where we look to find our meaning, our purpose. And we saw in that first psalm as well, as we dug a little bit deeper in, that, that it actually points us to Jesus. This, this style of psalm starts with, you know, blessed are those, which is exactly how Jesus started his Sermon on the Mount. The exact same language. And so this psalm pointed us to Jesus as the true blessed one. And we said that because of his work on the cross, we too can be a part of God's blessing. And, and the first psalm tells us that, that those who, who follow that blessed one, who follow Jesus and avoid sin, they're like a tree that's been transplanted, purposely placed next to uh, not just a stream, but a canal, an irrigation canal full of living water. And it bears fruit. It, it lasts through the drought. And so as we, as we strive to follow Jesus, we can claim that blessing as well. Today we're going to consider the next time of psalm, which is kind of the hymn, it's called, or the, or the psalm of praise. And this category is the, the second largest group of psalms, depending on how you uh, slot some of them. There are between about 25 and 35 different psalms that fit in this category. And these ones focus on declaring who God is and what He's done. They, they, they kind of drill down and point us at His unchanging character. They remind us how this immutability, the word for Him not changing, affects us and also creation. And so that quote that we started with from Tozer, he goes on. So let me read a little bit further there. He says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing thing about us. He says, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And a man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that, that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And so our, our worship, how we follow those gods, are as pure or as base as the worshiper entertains a high or low thought of God. And for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And so these psalms help us to have that high, elevated view of God. Among these hymns of praise are Psalm 8 and 33 and 47 and 65 and 66 and 100 and 103 and 4 and 111 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 145 through to the end of the book and 150. And so we're going to kind of parachute in and out of a few places today. Uh, One of the things, of course, we need to recognize when we come to any literature, but especially the Psalms, is we need to realize the genre of literature we're reading and studying. And so when we come to the Psalms, we need to read it and look at it differently than when we look at, say, Genesis or Deuteronomy, the kind of the law books. We read it differently than 1 Kings, which is telling us a history of Israel. We read it differently than we read Daniel, which is uh, some prophecy, but also kind of end times apocalyptic literature. We read it differently than Isaiah, which is pure prophecy, or Matthew as a gospel biography, or Galatians as a letter of encouragement to the church. When we, when we come to the Psalms, we read them as poetry, which is very different. As poetry, they, they, there's a structure that the Psalms all follow that, that lead us into sort of how we should read them and interpret them. 
And the hymn psalms, they have a, a four-point structure that they, they all basically do. So let's use Psalm 117 as an example. Uh, it's the shortest hymn, shortest book in the Bible, shortest chapter in the Bible. And it very conveniently fits on a single screen. So let me read it for us, and then we'll see how these hymns of praise, these psalms of praise, break down into their four parts. So let me read it first. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Glorify Him, all peoples. For His faithful love to us is great, and the Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Hallelujah. So here we see the pattern. First of all, there's a call to praise in all of these hymn songs. And in this verse, it says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Glorify Him, all peoples. This call might be a general statement. It may be addressed to a specific people. Remember, these were the, the Israelites' songs originally, so it may be written straight to them and say, hey, let's pay attention here and, and come back to this. Or it may be, as our case here, be a call to all nations, all people, everyone, come and glorify the Lord. Then there's always some sort of, or usually some sort of transitional word, like a, a for or a because that, that moves us into the next part. Here we've got for as our transition. And it leads us into the third part, which is the reason for praise. And this is the central element of these psalms. It's the meat of them, if you will. It's where the writer, it's where the psalmist tells us why we should praise the Lord. And that's where the importance of this type of psalm really lies. See, the writers here, the writers of these, these songs from, you know, however many years ago, weren't just trying to write music that, you know, sounded good as they were driving down the street or, or made the listeners feel good or, or encourage people necessarily. But these are really kind of specific. They're teaching psalms. They're reminding psalms. They're, they're giving people reasons for why they should praise God. It's not just praise God because we said so, but here's why you should praise God. And so this central section, there's all sorts of reason given in these psalms of, of, of the whys. Usually they'll do one of two things, maybe both even. Either the psalms, this section of the, the psalm will, will describe what God is like. They'll talk about His greatness or His, his character or His goodness or His faithfulness or, or any number of things like that. Or maybe they'll just declare what God has done. They'll, they'll remind the church of the time and, and us today of the great acts God has done in, in creation and in redemption. See, the psalmist wanted to make sure that the, the hymn book of the church of Israel and us today wasn't just, uh, again, just some songs. Some people have called them you know, prom songs to Jesus today where they, you know, oh God, we love you, you love me, great, ooh, ooh, ah, song's over in five minutes. But rather... These, these are filled with content and substance. They weren't just content to provide us songs that had a great melody, a good beat, but rather they wanted to make sure that people had reasons to praise God. And those reasons should be, should be fresh and rattle around in our minds often, and so they would give us as many reasons as possible. It's one of the things that, if I can brag on our music teams here at Trinity for a little bit, it's one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of the team for. There's, I suggest, a constant striving between all of us to make sure that we're singing songs that have some meat to them. Songs that remind us of who God is and what He's done, so that if you walk in here on any given service, Saturday or Sunday morning, before I'm even up here, before whoever's up here, you've heard the gospel at least once. And that's just a fantastic thing. Tim Keller, who's a, a author and pastor and writer in the States, he's written a devotional walking through the Psalms where he's taken the 150 Psalms and broken them up to 365 kind of days to walk through this thing where he's really kind of taught us from that. And he says this about the Psalms as a whole. And I would suggest uh, our Psalms of praise maybe more specifically. 
The Psalms help us to see God. God not as we wish or hope Him to be, but as He actually reveals Himself. And that little piece is so crucial. The descriptions of God in the Psalter, in the Psalms, are rich beyond human invention. He's more holy, more wise, more fearsome, more tender, and more loving than we would ever imagine Him to be. The Psalms fire our imaginations into new realms, yet guide them towards the God who actually exists. And they bring a reality to our prayer lives that nothing else can. That's why these Psalms are so important, to point us to God as He exists, as He has revealed Himself to us. So I mentioned there's about 25 or so of these Psalms, so let's look at a few of the different things that that this type or category of Psalm teaches us. We started in Psalm 117, where the psalmist writes, His faithful love to us is great, and His love endures forever. That's something about God. Psalm 8 says, You've covered the heavens with your majesty. The heavens are the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. Psalm 47 says, The Lord Most High is awe-inspiring. He's a great king over the whole earth, and He chooses, us, our, chooses for us our inheritance, the pride of Jacob whom He loves. Psalm 65 says, You answer us in righteousness, in, in rightness, with awe-inspiring works, God of our salvation, the God who rescues us, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the distant seas. You establish the mountains by your power, and you are robed with strength. You silence the roar of the seas and the roar of their waves. Right next in Psalm 66, they talk again about God's awe-inspiring works, His saving work, that He's the hope of all the world, that, that God has established the mountains, and then talks about His rescuing of Israel. Psalm 100 says, Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God, that He made us, and we are His, His people, the sheep of His pasture. It says to enter His gates with thanksgiving, His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name, for the Lord is good. His faithful love endures, not just for a little while, but forever. His faithfulness through all generations. And on and on they go. The last piece of the pattern of this hymn of praise is, is a renewed call to praise. And it can look a couple different ways. It can be short and simple like hallelujah from our Psalm 117. Or it may be more extended and reflective. And just a little note on hallelujah. It's a word that we've grabbed. It's taken from two Hebrew words, hallelujah and yah, which literally means praise the Lord. So whenever we say hallelujah, we are declaring praise the Lord. Which if you think about this, uh, try not to rabbit trail too far here, but if you think about Christmas, one of the, the great sort of Christmas season songs that handles Messiah, right? The chorus is the hallelujah chorus that, that's played everywhere. It's declaring, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Love it. Anyways, some of these last words may call us to put our trust in God for the same reasons the psalmist had just told us to praise Him. For an example of this, let's turn to Psalm 33. It won't be on the screens, but let me read it for us, and we'll see this pattern play out in Psalm 33. The psalmist writes, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a lyre. Make music to Him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. There's our call to praise. Then our central section. Why? For. 
The word of the Lord is right. All his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The stars were made by the word of the Lord and the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water to the sea in a heap and he puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy or blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the heart of them all. He considers all their works. Now a king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false sense of safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eyes on those who fear him, or those who hold him reverently, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and keep them alive in famine. And here's our, our conclusion, our call to trust and hope. He says, so, so we wait on the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. See how that broke down there into the four parts? The center section is, again, the meat, the reason for why we praise. Verses 4 through 19 gives us the reason and it gives us the foundation for hope. It's, this is a classic praise hymn. Think about all the things those verses told us. And if we, if we sat in them for a while, we'd find more and more and more as we, as we mind the depths of this psalm. He told us God's word is right. His work is trustworthy, which really sounds a lot like that gospel fluency series we just came out of where we want to trust in God's word and his work. We, we read that God loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his love. Heavens and stars were created by his word. That he gathers the seas. That he's, he's worth our awe. That his word is unchanging. It stands forever. It doesn't shift with the tides of culture or time. A nation or people that follow him are happy or, or blessed or fulfilled or find meaning and purpose. He formed our hearts and he keeps his eye on those who trust him in verse 18. And so when we come to a psalm like this, any psalm, but maybe especially some of these psalms of praise, we can learn to pray these things. We can pray that God would draw us to himself and remind us of all these things. God, remind us you are trustworthy. Remind us that your word stands good. Remind us that it's hard to see sometimes, but the earth is full of your love. And as we also read these psalms and and turn them into our prayers, let me suggest it would be good to have a pen or a highlighter handy to to highlight all these things that that they tell us about God so that we can meditate on them, which remember means to kind of mutter under our breath or murmur or or like consciously rattle them through our brains so that we have them later. Uh, And the church I was at before here, I talked about, you know, underline your Bible, guys. I was a youth pastor. Write things in your Bible. Get a journaling Bible. Write in the columns. Do whatever you do. Like, highlight stuff. And there were kids that came up and was like, we can't write in the Bible. It's, it's God's Word. It's like, oh, we can't do that. So if you need permission to write in this paper book, please, you have it. Write in it. Mark it up. One of the things you might want to do if you like uh, bright colors is get a box of crayons or pencil crayons and tape it to your, keep it with your Bible. And then choose a color and says, okay, anytime I see a verse or a couple words that tell me about who God is, I'm going to highlight it in this color. And then later, as you go back through your Bible, you can flip through and say, oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. 
Look, it's just loaded of the Bible revealing himself, God revealing himself to us. So I encourage you to try that. We can fall in love with these Psalms and, and this, this pattern as well because this is God telling us about himself. It's him revealing himself to us. This isn't a, this isn't a game where God has said, well, good luck finding me. This is not cosmic hide and seek. We're not guessing about who he is. Another way we can come to the Psalms like this is we can sort of put ourselves in the, the audience of the original hearers or the first hearers. When the Israelites maybe first heard this psalm or were first singing it those centuries ago and centuries before Jesus came, we can walk in and we can say, well, listen, psalmist who wrote this, how do we know these things are true of God? For example, again, from Psalm 33, the psalmist tells us, for the word of the Lord is right and his work is trustworthy, verses 4 and 5. He loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. And so one commentator says, well, we can walk into the room where, where someone's singing this song to us and say, how do you know those things are true about, about the God of Israel? And then we can imagine the psalmist saying, well, let me tell you a story. Let me remind you, our God has proved his faithfulness, his justice, and his love in the great events of our history. Remember the Exodus, how God led us out of Egypt, freed us from slavery, and how God led us through the wilderness and always provided for us. We could trust in him. He was faithful. He did what he said he would do, and we can praise him for that. Maybe that raises another question for us to ask the psalmist in this imaginary conversation. He says, well, listen, you say that the whole earth is full of the love of God, but how can that be? How can the whole earth experience what Israel knows about this transforming faithfulness and justice and and love of God? And well, this psalm answers those questions for us by pointing to us the God who redeemed Israel and through Jesus has rescued us as well. It reminds us in verses 6 to 9 that the stars and the seas and the earth, they all come from Him. And so He has power to rule them. It reminds us in verses 10 and 11 that as He rules the earth, rules the, earth the psalmist goes on to say that, that God created the earth. He also controls history. He's got it under control. And that He holds everyone accountable to Himself in verses 13 to 15. And so the best place for us to do is to trust in Him, not in human resources. Remember He said in those verses 16 to 19, kings won't survive by their strength. A warrior won't do great just because he's a big guy. You know, we can't trust in the horse but instead trust in God. And that's what we wrap up with in Psalm 33 and verse 20. So we will wait on the Lord. Of course, today we know more than those first hearers, the the Israelites knew, because again, we can look back and see Jesus. And as we saw last week with Psalm 1, how it points us, it hints us towards Jesus. This does as well. Jesus, the one who came to make the invisible God visible for us. The one who came to show us who God is and what He's like and how much He loves us and how, and how we can know Him. We know that it was with and through Jesus that God created the world. We read about that in John We know that it was with and through Jesus that God redeemed and rescued the world and rules the world. The gospel, again, with our gospel perspective, looking back from a New Testament perspective, we know that because of his life and death and resurrection, Jesus is also Lord of heaven and and sitting at the right hand of God, lording over history as well. So we can see how Jesus fits in here. A couple other points to make about these Psalms as we sort of head towards a close. I mentioned Keller's book before. We'll come back to it here. Again, this little devotional he's wrote in that he calls the Songs of Jesus. 
He notes there that, that Jesus likely sang through the Psalms his entire life. It's possible he even had them all memorized. One of the things we like to do in our 20th century is we, we read about Jesus and we try and uh, wrap Jesus into our modern context. And so that's how we get all the artwork of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus who is probably German or Scandinavian or something because that's how we, you know, the art shows him, right? But we have to remember Jesus was Jewish. So if we want to update our artwork, look for a Middle Eastern Jesus. This was, a, this was a, a man, a boy, a man raised with Jewish tradition, raised in the synagogue. Uh, and so we, we read that even when he and his disciples were celebrating the Passover meal, the Last Supper in Matthew 26, they sang a hymn together. Probably one of these. Probably Psalm 100 and something in the teens as a Passover hymn. As Jesus taught, he quotes from the Psalms more than any other place in the Hebrew Bible. He was a Jewish boy shaped by the Psalms. They shaped his worship. They shaped how he saw his life. And as we dig into them and wrestle through them and study them and and meditate on them, they will shape ours as well. Paul also points back to the Psalms as he instructs the church later in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through the Psalms, through the hymns, there's what we're talking about today, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. He too is encouraging, and remember, Paul was a good Jewish kid as well, right? He was one of the best Jewish scholars before he met Jesus, so he's, he's got this rootedness in the Psalms as well. And so he's telling us that these 150 psalms, the, the songs of Jesus, as, as Keller called them, should become a part of who we are. And I think that as we read them, they will. Their words will, will root themselves in our hearts. The repetition of, His love endures forever. His love endures forever. He is faithful and compassionate, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. They'll, they'll dig in there and they'll get stuck. They'll be deep in our hearts and souls and the rich theology, the rich language of who God is will help us to hold God in the highest place. The Psalms as well, Paul says here, they're, they're not just words to be read, and so don't come to them because Sean challenged me to read five Psalms a day and I can get through the whole thing in a month. Okay, we've read my five, check it off, now get on to the next thing. But they're not just to be read, but they're, they're to spur us to action. The Psalms are things that should be done. Trust in Him, so we wait on Him. They should be acted out, they should be sung out loud, as we've done this morning, and they should be prayed out loud. Another thing is, as we study and pray through these psalms, our perspective will change. One writer said, worship, and so dealing with the psalms is an act of worship. Worship has a way of changing our perspective, not because God changes, because He in fact does not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we worship God in song or in prayer, declaring who He is based on His word, we're reminded that He is faithful. Everything He has ever been, He will continue to be. And as we get a glimpse of His glory, a glimpse of His majesty, His strength, His sovereignty, our angle on our own temporal circumstances is put into a proper perspective. And that's the goal, right? We don't, we don't worship God so that He comes to look like us, but as we worship Him, we will start to recognize who He is and, and we'll get shaped. Similarly, E. Stanley Jones wrote this. He said, prayer, so let's say praying the Psalms in our case this morning, is not about bending God's will to mine, but it's about bringing my will into conformity with God's will, so that His will may work in and through me. 
I love that. Let me say it one more time. Prayer is not bending God to my will, but it's bringing my will into conformity with God's will so that His will may work in and through me. He gives us this great example. If you're in a small boat and you throw out a boat hook or an anchor to catch the shore, do you pull the shore to yourself or do you pull yourself to the shore? Prayer is not a bending of the universe to God's, uh, bending of the universe to your will, making God a cosmic bellhop for your purposes, but prayer is a cooperating with the purposes of God to do things you never dreamed you could do. I love that. So often I think we get tied into the, uh, the idea that maybe God's like a genie. Now, Aladdin just was remade and came out, and so God is now, we don't pick up our Bibles, rub it just the right way, read the right things, and out pops a blue Will Smith saying, what can I do for you? But it's the opposite of that, right? As we study the text, as we recognize who God is and what he's done and all that he continues to do for us, man, our hearts get changed. We change. We grow closer to him so that we do things we could never dream of doing on our own without him. Finally, my last kind of point on the Psalms and worship. Sometimes we get caught up in the the type of worship songs or worship Psalms we prefer in a church setting. Maybe you've heard of this. People can get distracted by the uh, distracted from the purpose of worship by the ongoing competition between should we do the old songs, should we do the new songs, should we have a more formal style, should we have a more relaxed style, should we have electric instruments or acoustic instruments, or should we just throw out all the instruments and just do it with just our voices? And it just becomes a distraction. It leads us away from the whole point. And so it's helpful for us to know that a hymn can be old or new. I mean, these things are, are hundreds and hundreds of years old, but we're singing them. And guys like Chris Tomlin help us to sing them new every couple of years, which is brilliant. Any hymn can be old or new, and it's a, it's a song that celebrates who God is and his unchanging character. If whatever songs we sing are pointing us to a higher perspective, if they're reminding us of the character of God and and worshiping, uh, calling us to worship the God of the Bible, the other details shouldn't matter as much. One of the things the church has wrestled with, probably you could make a case for it right from when it started until today, is how do we balance method versus message? See, our method of communicating the gospel has to change, has to change. But the message never changes. Right? If we think, even thinking of Viviana, if we took Trinity Bible Church, lifted it up, flew it to Guatemala, and plopped it down there and changed nothing else, would she know Jesus? Maybe. But probably not. Right? The, the culture is different. The language is different. If we consider, I was talking with um, someone before the first service that uh, another organization we support is C2C, which is a church planting network across the country. And in their annual report, they noted that 400 churches close a year in Canada. And a lot of those are, again, broad brush, churches that are stuck on the method and stuck maybe a generation ago or two generations ago or three generations ago. So the language they're using isn't, they're, they're communicating the gospel, hopefully, maybe, but they're not communicating in a way that we can understand. And so we need to wrestle as Trinity Bible Church as well. We need to wrestle with how do we communicate the gospel? The gospel never changes. But are we doing the best we can to, to speak in a way? Is even having a 30-minute sermon the best way to communicate the gospel? With a, a fast-paced eye world, I'm, I'm not totally sure. 
Is the, our music style, is that the best way to communicate to a world that, that isn't, you know, doesn't know God? Even the questions that the generation coming up is asking have changed since the advent of the iPhone. Right? The world is completely different now that we all have the internet in our pockets. And so everything has to change. We need to, to adjust our, me- our method, but hold fast to the message. So let me challenge you to be, even, I heard one pastor say quite a long time ago, he said, uh, well, a few years ago, he said, I hope that the church I pastor, it would be great if it was a church that I didn't even like the music we were doing. Like it would, the style was completely wrong. And, and I, like I would never listen to that at home. But if it, it's saying the gospel and there's people coming to meet Jesus there, who cares about my preferences, right? Method versus message. So that's maybe a, a longer than I meant to addendum to how we deal with these sorts of songs and psalms. And so the challenge for us is to learn from the psalms, to have them fill our minds with the truth of God so that we would be rightly able to, to describe who he is and what he's like and, and what he's done for us. And also grow in our ability to declare, again, who God is, what he's like, and what he's done for us. And ultimately, that points us to Jesus. That God loved the world so much that he sent his son that he, he would come and rescue us and rescue us back into relationship with God. And so let me close our time uh, with the quote we started with, and then I'll wrap up praying for us. Again, A.W. Tozer says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so for this reason, the gravest question before the church, and that's each one of us, is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this this time, this opportunity we've had uh, to hear from you to hear from your word, to to study this category of the Psalms, to hopefully allow them to speak to us. Thank you for how many of them there are that that tell us the great things about you. I pray, God, that you would help us to uh, sort of sort through the things that do come to our minds when we think about you and and sift through them and say, "Well, well, what is actually true? What's coming from the Bible and what is maybe coming from somewhere else? And I pray, God, that you would give us a a heart, a desire to just eat the Psalms up so that our our view of you would be constantly raised higher and higher and higher. And as we do that too, I pray, God, that you would draw our hearts to you. As that Jones quote said, that we would not try and bend your will to ours, but that you would bend our wills to you so that we could do more than, than all we ask or imagine to make your name great. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.